Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And we do pray now that as we hear it proclaimed in our midst, that it would work within us. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it, that we would respond rightly with faith and obedience. And so we pray that your spirit would work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've completed now our series through the book of Colossians, and we will open this morning uh, the companion letter, Paul's letter to Philemon. It's in, find this in your pew Bibles on page 1000, so please open there to Paul's letter to Philemon. I'll be reading the whole letter, and we'll just uh, spend one sermon uh, looking at this brief letter, just one chapter this morning. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, Typhileman, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became to you in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me 
For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This morning we come to one of the great treasures that we have here in the New Testament, this brief letter from Paul to his dear friend and fellow worker, Philemon. It's a deeply personal letter. It's written with great care on a very sensitive issue. As Paul is sending back to Philemon Onesimus, his runaway slave who has now put his faith in Jesus Christ. In this brief letter, we see how the gospel changes lives, how it transforms relationships, how it leads to healing and reconciliation. It's also a masterclass on persuasive writing, as Paul refuses to command Philemon to do anything, but makes such a persuasive appeal that he's really left with no option but to grant what Paul argues he ought to do in light of the gospel of grace. And the background here, of course, is the question of slavery. And as I discussed in a previous sermon in Colossians, slavery was an ever-present fact of life in the Roman world in which Paul lived. It was a great evil perpetrated by sinful men in the fallen world, the fallen world in which we live. And of course, slavery still exists in our world today. But it dominated the Roman world in which it's estimated that 30% of the population in any given time were slaves. And so it shouldn't surprise us that a wealthy slave owner had put his faith in Christ. And while Christianity was spreading rapidly, this small minority religion had no hopes at this time of overthrowing slavery, which was the very backbone of the Roman economy. So while Paul here, he doesn't launch a frontal attack on the institution of slavery in the sense of calling for the immediate liberation of all the slaves, political activism was not Paul's mission. However, here in this letter, he begins to show how the gospel undermines the whole concept of one man owning another. Now, sadly, Christians throughout history have not always been consistent in their opposition to slavery. We know that before the Civil War, many pro-slavery Christians in the American South defended their views from Scripture. While at the same time, abolitionists drew their strongest arguments from God's Word, and in the end, they have been vindicated. But this morning, our focus is not actually going to be on slavery. That's not the, the ultimate point of this letter. But rather, what this letter has to teach us its main point is on how the gospel transforms our lives, our relationships, and leads us to reconciliation. So we'll consider a few questions of introduction, the author, the recipients, the setting. Then we'll see Paul's main appeal to Philemon and what underlies it all. It's the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first we see the author, as Paul introduces himself in the very first verse, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's accompanied by a close collaborator, his good friend, his son in the faith, Timothy. This is usually where Paul would introduce himself with his authoritative office. He is an apostle. But keeping with the overall tone of the letter here, he says he's writing not as an apostle, but as a friend, not as a superior to pool rank, He doesn't use that title. He says, I'm just a prisoner. And if we skip down to the end of the letter, we see in verses 23 and 24, who's with Paul as he's writing. 
He sends greetings from five men, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, all of whom are also mentioned in the greetings in Colossians. And this, along with the fact that it's Onesimus who accompanies both this letter and that one, it makes it almost certain that these two letters were sent together, most likely during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, about 60 AD. And as you know from the title of the letter, it's addressed to Philemon, but as we read the letter itself, it's also to Aphia, our sister, likely Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, who may have been Philemon's son and also perhaps the pastor of the church meeting in Philemon's home. And it's also to that house church meeting there. So this is a public letter which would be read to the church, and whatever Philemon did in response would be publicly known. This, of course, puts some public pressure on Philemon to give a favorable response to Paul's request here in the letter. And yet, Philemon, he is the principal person addressed. In the majority of this letter, it's written in the first person singular, to you, Philemon. And that's why, at the end of the day, it's not inaccurate that this letter is commonly called Paul's letter to Philemon. Now Paul here, he calls Philemon his fellow worker, and while we don't know a detailed history between Paul and Philemon, scholars make educated guesses on what, based on what we do know. Since Philemon lived in Colossae and Paul had never been there, they must have met while Philemon was on a business trip outside in another city, most likely Ephesus. It was perhaps at that time that Paul led Philemon to the Lord, as we learn later in the letter. And because of the personal nature of this letter, we get the sense that this was not just some brief encounter, but Paul and Philemon had spent considerable time together. As Paul calls him his fellow worker, they had gone on to work together alongside one another in ministry. They had grown very close. We also get further insights into Philemon's faith in Paul's thanksgiving in verses 4 to 7. Paul describes how he constantly gives thanks to God for Philemon because he's heard of his love and his faith. And we get a picture of a man who is following the Lord, living out what it means to be a faithful believer. Particularly striking is verse 7. I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is clearly quite active in ministry, far beyond merely hosting the church in his home, and Paul wants him to know what an encouragement this has been to him. The main body of this letter, it begins in verse 8. Here Paul begins to make his appeal, and I say he begins because he doesn't actually get to any concrete request until much later all the way in verse 17. But he begins, as we read in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So here Paul, he introduces this idea that I'm not going to issue a command. Rather, I make an appeal from one friend to another. An appeal to love based on love. He doesn't want to compel a friend, one friend, to love another. How can you compel someone to love? But rather, he wants genuine love that flows from the heart. 
And that seems to be why he chooses an appeal rather than a command. And as we work through this appeal, we see that woven throughout are three key relationships. It's Paul's relationship with Philemon, Paul's relationship with Onesimus, and Philemon's relationship with Onesimus. And what ties all three men together really is that they are all believers. They all have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundational bond that draws them all together, that underlies everything that Paul writes in this letter. Paul says he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And somehow, in God's providence, the Lord had brought Onesimus, the runaway slave, into his orbit. And then Paul had led this man to Christ. There are all sorts of speculations. How was such a thing possible? How was it that Onesimus, the runaway slave, had made the 1,300-mile journey from Colossae to Rome? How, at the end of that journey, did he just so happen upon Paul as he was stuck in his prison cell? Now, it's true that it was easier for a runaway slave to blend in in a large city, so that's perhaps how he made his way to Rome. And it's also true that all roads lead to Rome. It's almost certain that he had heard his master speak of Paul, the one who had led him to Christ. And so perhaps he was drawn when he heard that Paul lived in the city. Possibly he had regrets at some point. And so he sought out Paul at that point. But one way or another, at the end of the day, what really happened is it was God's providence that brought him to Paul. It was the Lord then who used Paul to bring this man to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls him, my child, whose father I became, whom I became. What tenderness he uses as he describes this relationship, this deep bond that they have formed. And then we read in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. And Paul here is engaging in a bit of, for, of wordplay. Onesimus is a slave name. It means useful, and it was given to slaves with the hope that they would live up to their name, that he would become useful. But Paul is saying that now that he is a believer in Christ, now he has truly become useful. He's saying that his character has been completely transformed by his faith in Christ. He has been filled with the Spirit of God, and this has changed him completely. It may even be that he is now showing gifts for the Christian ministry. We do know, as he testifies here, that he's doing an excellent job serving Paul, as Paul is extremely reluctant to part with him. As Paul goes on to write, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Now here Paul is basically saying that in serving me, Onesimus is representing you, Philemon, even though you didn't know it. You thought of him as a runaway slave. You had written him off as lost, 
Meanwhile, he was here being a blessing to me on your behalf. And in fact, if you had sent him for me, to me for that purpose, you would have given me a wonderful gift. But of course, that's not how things happened. And I can't continue to benefit from his service without your consent. I can't force you to do what is good. And so now I give you a chance to do what is good out of your own free will. And that's the tenor of the whole letter. Nothing forced, nothing compelled. It is not a command, but rather an appeal based on the gospel of free grace so that Philemon might receive Onesimus in love. And in verses 15 and 16, Paul adds another strand of argument to his appeal to Philemon. He, He considers the divine purpose in all that has come to pass. We read, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now here, Paul, he's not saying that it was right for Onesimus to run away, but he's encouraging to Philemon to look at the situation, see how the Lord is working through it all, using it to accomplish something that was good. It reminds us of the words that Joseph said to his brothers, referring to how they had sold him into slavery. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, Genesis 50, 20. Now, Paul here, he uses a bit of a euphemism to describe Onesimus's running away. He says, he was parted from you, but now you will have him back forever. And Paul's not exaggerating here. He means that literally because Onesimus is now a believer, now they share an eternal inheritance. They will dwell with God together forever. And how much better to have him back in this new relationship, no longer a slave, far more than a slave as a beloved brother in Christ. Now, this is a direct application of what we saw in Colossians 3.11, that in the church there is no longer slave or free, for Christ is all and in all. And here it's debated exactly what Paul is saying. Perhaps it's possible that he's simply saying, receive him back in the status quo, still as a slave and you simply be a good master and also a brother in Christ. But from the contrast that he sets up here, no longer a slave, but now a brother, it seems quite clear to me and to most interpreters that Paul is implying Onesimus cannot continue to be both. So without directly asking Philemon to set him free, Paul is showing him it does not make any sense for brother to own a brother. Now perhaps that's reading too much into it, but even if so, what comes next is actually just as strong, if not even stronger. For now we come to the stated request in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now things are actually flipped. It's so interesting how Onesimus had represented Philemon as he served Paul, but now Onesimus is standing in for Paul. As Paul's request to Philemon is that he would welcome Onesimus and treat him 
in the same way he would treat Paul himself. Philemon may not have initially been like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, running out to receive the prodigal, embracing him, wrapping him up in a robe, saying all is forgiven and throwing the party with the fattened calf. In a real sense, that is Paul's request here. With the same joy, with the same honor, with the same lavishness that you would give to welcoming me into your home. Give that to Onesimus in my place. If you would throw a feast in my honor to welcome my visit, throw one for Onesimus. And of course, this requires reconciliation. Philemon must be willing to forgive Onesimus. Of course, in those days, many masters, if a slave ran away, they would send out people to hunt that slave, to drag him back home and would receive him with many beatings, if not with the death penalty. But here, of course, Paul is calling Philemon to forgiveness, to reconciliation. And you all know forgiveness is costly. It's something that's easy to talk about, beautiful to witness. But when it's your turn to forgive an actual wrong committed against you, it's very hard to do. As C.S. Lewis writes, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. But Philemon knew the gospel. He knew how much he had been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. And it is the vast, immeasurable, the vast, immeasurable difference between the greatness of grace that we have been given, the greatness of our sin against holy God that has been forgiven, compared to the far less significant sins committed against us. This is how the gospel gives you the ability to forgive and be reconciled to those who have sinned against you. And so Philemon is to put into practice what we saw in Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We also see here that Paul is willing to make restitution on behalf of Onesimus. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If there's any monetary aspect to this, Paul is willing to take it on. It was common in those days when a slave ran away, he would also steal from his master in order to fund his escape to have what he needed to get set up in his own new life on his own. And we don't know if Onesimus did this, and that's what Paul's referring to. It seems like if he had actually stolen, he would have confessed it to Paul, and Paul would know the details. So perhaps Paul is simply referring to the labor that was lost, any business that was interrupted when Onesimus lost, left. Now, whatever the case may be, Paul says, transfer his debt to my account. And then we get a twist in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Here Paul takes the pen from his scribe, as he does in all his letters, of course to authenticate the letter, but also here to put this particular line in underline, bold, and highlight, I will repay... But then he reminds Philemon who the real 
debtor is. Barclay writes, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses and loaded with a debt so large that he is under limitless obligation to Paul. It's like Paul is saying, I will repay his debt, but if you remember all I've done for you, is this really a debt you want to call in? For we learn here that it was through Paul that Philemon had heard the gospel. He had put his faith in Christ. Now, of course, it was not Paul who saved him. Christ is the one who saved him. Christ is the only one who can save. But Paul was the human instrument that the Lord used to make himself known to Philemon. How could Philemon ever repay Paul for giving him so precious a gift, for sharing with him the priceless good news of Jesus Christ that led to his salvation, that led him to eternal life? Since he could never repay Paul, all he could do was transfer Onesimus' debts to Paul's account, and it would simply be swallowed up. And Philemon would still be indebted to Paul. We see a similar principle at work in Romans 15, 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of servants to them in material things. Now, there's no way you could ever repay the gift of receiving the gospel. But it was right and good for these Gentiles to, in return, give a generous financial gift to the poor Jews in Jerusalem who had been the source of the spiritual blessings that they had received. Of course, the bottom line of all this is what Paul writes in Romans 13, 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's the debt that we all owe to one another. Always the need to love one another. As Paul wraps up, he expresses his expectation that Philemon will not only grant the request, but he will go even further. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Just as we saw in verse 7 that Philemon had refreshed the hearts of others, so Paul says, refresh my heart as well. And he is confident Philemon will do so, and he will go even above and beyond. But we might ask, what is this above and beyond? What is this even more that Paul is confident Philemon will do? We don't know exactly. He doesn't say, but the obvious answer is to grant that which we saw was implied to free Onesimus from slavery. And furthermore, it may be that Paul and Onesimus desired that Onesimus might continue to minister alongside Paul, whether he returned to Rome if if Paul remained in prison or even if Paul was set free, that Onesimus would be free to continue with him on his journeys. Either way, this would require that Onesimus would be freed from his obligations to Philemon. And we see that in verse 22. Paul was hoping to come and to stay with Philemon. Paul doesn't know his future, but he is making his plans. And if he's freed, Colossae would be one of the first places he would visit. After we read this letter, 
we are dying to know. How did Philemon respond? Did he grant Paul's request? Of course, the letter itself doesn't tell us, but the fact that it was preserved, it gives us good evidence that Philemon received the letter well, that he responded favorably. We also have one more bit of evidence from church history, as there is a letter from Ignatius of Antioch, one of the church fathers, written to the church of Ephesus. It was almost 50 years later, but it's just the right timing, when Onesimus would have been in his 70s, and several times he mentions their faithful elder and overseer, Onesimus. As we consider a few points of application, the first thing to notice is that Paul's appeal in this letter is not only rooted in the gospel, based on the gospel of God's grace, but it is actually itself a reflection of the gospel, a picture of the gospel, you might say. Consider, you were created to love and to serve the God who created you. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Like a runaway slave in your sin, you abandoned God to serve and to worship created things, to serve yourself and the things of this world. But if you put your faith in Christ, he is your great high priest who intercedes with his father, making an appeal on your behalf, very similar to the appeal that Paul makes with Philemon here. He says to the father, receive back this runaway with the very welcome that you would give to me, your son. And whatever wrongs he has done, whatever sins he has committed, charge those to my account. I will gladly bear them all on the cross. And this appeal that Christ makes, you know that the Father is glad to accept because, of course, this is the Father's own plan. It was his plan all along. He sent his Son for this very purpose to bear the sins of all those whom the Father has chosen, that he might save all those who put their trust in Christ. And so if you have not already, I urge you to trust in Christ today. Receive his gift of forgiveness of your sins, the gift of eternal life. We also see here in this passage how the Lord changes Onesimus' life. And the same goes for all who trust in the Lord. He will make you useful in his service, as he grants you his spirit, as he equips you with gifts that you might serve and that you might be a blessing to others as you walk with the Lord. As we saw earlier, having received such great grace, this gives you the strength to forgive others who have wronged you. You are called to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. The church is to be a place where reconciliation is cheerfully practiced, difficult though it may be. As believers, you are called not only to forgive others, those who've directly wronged you, but also see the example that Paul makes here as a peacemaker, seeking to make peace between Philemon and Onesimus. And so if you see two brothers, a brother and a sister, who are at odds with one another, that also is your calling to bring reconciliation now, Paul here, he does it by writing a letter because, well, that was his only option. He was confined to prison. But far better, of course, is that if you know two people who are not recognized, you would personally counsel them. You would personally meet with them together. You would point them to the gospel. You would help them in the Lord 
to make peace. And so what a beautiful picture we have here in this letter of how the gospel of Jesus Christ, it transforms our lives, it, it transforms our relationships, it creates peace. Because Christ is the great peacemaker who reconciles you to God. And also by his grace, he fills you with his love and mercy so that you can be a peacemaker, not only in your own relationships, but with those around you. This is the gift that he gives us of peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. We thank you that he has given his life on the cross for our sins, that our great debt with you is charged to his account so that he can say, receive this one as you, have, as you would receive me. We thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel that you've given us here in this letter to Philemon, this beautiful picture of reconciliation, and we pray, Lord, that you would be making us your agents of peace, your peacemakers to those around us, uh, both as we tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ and as we practice uh, this forgiveness uh, with those around us. We thank you for this grace. May it so fill our lives and overflow that others would see it, uh, see it in our lives, in our hearts, in our practice, in our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.